AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. The Volume. Charles Darwin. The Nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today we've got lots of fun NBA basketball to talk with you all, starting with the return of Demetrius Jamel Morant, who came back after serving a 25-game suspension, obviously for flashing the tool a couple too many times on IG Live. And he made quite the statement in his return. Comes up with a huge fourth quarter performance and a game winner as the Memphis Grizzlies finally actually win a game, this one over the New Orleans Pelicans. So, Logan, considering all of the discourse that we've heard about Jaw in his absence, do you think he's actually become underrated? Yeah, I do think Jaw's become underrated to an extent, Carson. Uh, I think it started with how good the Grizzlies you know, we're without John Morant mm-hmm. over these past couple of seasons. Uh, they were 26 and 14 without John Morant, and uh, that's entering the season. And I think that, you know, you can attribute a lot of that, a lot of their success without John to having Tyus Jones, you know, come off the bench. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was invaluable to them, uh, setting up the offense without him. And he's a really good point guard. I mean, one of the consistently uh, best assist to turnover ratios in all of basketball. I mean, he's just a great table setter so a guy like that is invaluable to have off the bench point blank and then of course when your starting point guard is out he's huge but yeah I do think we underrated him you know I mean consistently I think that you know the take was that and the fact that the Memphis Grizzlies had a uh, bottom half half court offense consistently with Ja out there you know but I, I I don't know if it's been his absence man no nobody moves like Ja man nobody no, can do the literally. things that Ja Morant does on the court, and like you mentioned last night, we saw what an absurd acrobatic fourth quarter weapon John Morant is. I mean, the explosiveness—nobody can stay in front of him. Yeah. You've got one of the best uh, 
point of attack defenders in all the league defending him last night and Herb Jones. I mean, he is legitimately all defense on that final possession. He just takes him to the hole. Mm-hmm. There's nothing he can do. And, you know, it's not just the athletic traits, the explosivity. What I was really impressed with last night is uh, the gathers, the footwork, the body mm-hmm. control, the elegance, the again, man, all of that fourth quarter, all of the third in fourth down to the final possession, the focus, the touch, the clutch gene. I was blown away by Ja. He's he's just special. And again, I want to put this in context. This is a really good Pelicans team. And Ja, mm-hmm. big dogged everybody yeah. on the court. They go on a nine-one yeah. run in the fourth quarter. Carson, uh, I you know they they didn't lead since the first quarter in this game until that fourth quarter run. Like he big dogged everybody. Uh, yeah, thirty-four six and eight, two steals and a block. I think Ja has cemented himself for. For big dog status, and <laughs> I, I don't know where I would have had him coming into this year. You know, I've kind of flopped with him somewhere in my top ten. Roof, you know, he big dogged everybody. Uh, top ten, man. I, I was gonna say, I mean, coming into this year, you know, I wouldn't know where I'd put him. Yeah, you know, I'd have him top ten. Uh, he's much higher than that. You know what I mean? I, Wait, what are you talking about? Among point guards or among NBA players? Jesus Christ, man! Point guards. Okay. Thank God. I was very confused. I thought we were having a Jaws top 10 take, which by the way, I went back and looked <laughs> at some of these like major outlet player rankings. And just a year ago, ESPN did have Jaw as the number nine player in the league. Wow. So I think that we've kind of gone on the arc from overrated because he was so thrilling as an individual player just a one-of-a-kind athlete, as you say, and because the Grizzlies were a really good regular season team, to now, I do think a bit underrated. And that's coming from someone who has legitimate criticisms of Jaw. And I know that a lot of Grizzlies and Jaw fans got very upset with me over the summer because I gave the take about how he wasn't in my top 10 guys 25 and under who I would want to build around. And that's including some 25-year-olds like Shea Gilles, Alexander, Jason Tatum, who you don't necessarily think of super young guys at this stage in their career. But it was because of the fact that he is ultimately an average efficiency scorer who's not a plus defender, who, although he is a very good playmaker, isn't on the genius level of a Trey Young in terms of amplifying his teammates with that sort of next-level cerebral playmaking. And he's not a great half-court offensive engine. He is unbelievable in transition, but when we're talking about the elite tiers of players, he's not going to consistently, automatically make you good in those half-court contexts. But I do think some people have taken it a bit too far. As I said, I went and I looked at some of these big outlet player rankings. The Ringer has him as the number 32 player in the NBA right now behind LaMelo, B.I., Darius Garland, Cat, Tyrese Maxey, Jalen Brown, DeMontis Sabonis. I'm not saying that I necessarily disagree with all of those, but I do disagree with some of them. LaMelo was playing at a really high level, but I still think just the consistent rim pressure from Jaw is more reliable, good offense. Uh, Brandon Ingram, I don't know. Yes, he's a very skilled shot maker, but he doesn't exert that sort of pressure on a defense either. DeMontis Sabonis, I think there's real questions about how he scales to a playoff environment if you don't have to respect him as a consistent jump shooter. But I think ESPN might have been even more egregious. They had him at number 35 behind Triple J, Logan, his own teammate four spots higher, behind Macau Bridges. And I think that... There is a trend in the NBA today where we can look at these high-powered, dynamic, 
pick-and-roll heavy offensive guards who maybe aren't the most efficient, who aren't like the absolute best version of that. And we can say those guys are almost a dime a dozen in today's league. And there are a lot of really talented players in that mold. And maybe that's not the most perfect archetype if you're talking about scaling to the highest levels of championship basketball. But you see what happens when you take a guy like that out of this offense entirely. Like Triple J, maybe if I'm building a team that's already loaded with star offensive creators, I would take Triple J over John Morant because of the complementary skill sets. But who is better at carrying my team to be capable? Who gives me a higher floor? Who makes me a competitive, respectable offensive basketball team? It is a dude like John Morant. And I think that that became a bit undervalued because... I was out on the Grizzlies before this year. I had them missing the play-in because they have had two things that they were great at as a basketball team in recent years. They were an elite interior defense, an elite rebounding team, physically imposing in the front court, and then they were this awesome transition offense, and they lost the key components to both parts of that equation. They lost Steven Adams, who made them that elite rebounding team. They've been 22nd in rebound rate this year, and they've been outside the top 10 in terms of defense, whereas they've consistently been a top five sort of defensive unit when Steven Adams is out there. And then offensively, this is a team that hasn't had good creators outside of John Morant. I love Desmond Bain, but he's not equipped to carry an offense like that. And then you have subpar shooting around him. This team is 29th in three-point percentage. And they're down to 17th in pace. When you don't have a guy who can push the tempo, that sort of next-level athlete like Jaw, they lose that dynamic of their offense. And it has made them the worst offense in basketball up to this point. So he totally changes the picture of this offense. Yes, I still have criticisms about him. I'm not the highest guy in the world on John Morant. But you see the value of a star offensive guard and what happens when you take that guy away and it's really really ugly so zooming out here this is a Grizzlies team that was not the worst in basketball through 25 games because the Washington Wizards and the Detroit Pistons and the San Antonio Spurs exist but they were next on that list so what does his return mean for Memphis in terms of their team outlook and what they can achieve I think they can get close to a, a play-in push, you know. I mean, they have been without uh, Marcus Smart. I think he helps their perimeter defense uh, when he comes back. And I think this is going to be a top 10 to fringe top 10 defense the rest of the way. And I think that's going to be good enough to get the Grizzlies close. Considering the hole, uh, the hole that they've dug themselves at 7-19, and uh, again, you've got 56 games left. I probably wouldn't predict the Grizzlies to make it. Again, it's just a massive, massive deficit to climb out of and try to get yeah. back into the picture. But I do think the Grizzlies are going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a lot of good teams and be competitive with them. Like, again, with John Morant, like you mentioned, that star guard, it's about the, you know, it's about the easy offense that he creates. And again, in the game, hanging in the balance, uh, I really liked it. You know, Ja says, I want to run a post-up for Triple J. And Desmond and them go, <laughs> yeah, right, Joe, we're yeah. getting you to rock and you're going to go to the <laughs> yeah. hole. You know, like, uh, no, that's dumb offense. Uh, mm -hmm. It's invaluable having Joe back. And so I think that it's going to instill a little bit of fire in these Grizzlies cars, and I think they're going to fight hard. And I think they're going to be a lot better down the stretch. Again, I think they're going to they're gonna make it close. But the West yeah. is super deep. There's a lot of great teams. And I just don't think it's going to be enough. I think there's too big of a hole right now. And like you said, yeah. I don't think Jaw's a perfect player. Even down the stretch in this game, it was kind of frustrating me in the fourth quarter how much Jaw was settling for the jump shot sometimes. Yeah. And I'm like, Jaw, that's just not the shot right here. You have been yeah. killing this team getting downhill, and that's your bread and butter. 
But yeah. again, man, I, I don't know, Carson. I, I know we have this conversation periodically, too. Uh, I'll ask this in a minute. Do you think this dramatically changes the outlook for the Grizzlies? Do you anticipate a a playoff push for Memphis? I don't think so. Unfortunately, the hole is just a bit too deep right now, and the Adams absence still really matters, man. They are not going to suddenly turn into an elite rebounding team and an elite defensive team, and that has been their greatest strength as a basketball team. And the other key factor that I didn't mention earlier that I think created for a sort of misleading number in terms of their record without jaw it's not just having a commander of the second unit like tyus jones who could step up so effectively as a pure point guard it's the totality of that bench unit which was a bona fide strength for this team for several years d'anthony melton kyle anderson those are guys you look at and they're playing important roles on some of the best teams in basketball just really really good role players and they lost those guys and they haven't replaced that value. So now when it's Bismack Biombo at the starting five and Santi Aldama is your best player off the bench, it's just not the same group in terms of those things that were previously some of their greatest strengths. But Jaw definitely makes them a better offense. And I think that you touch on a great point with the fact that he can shoot you out of games in terms of settling from the perimeter, but also at times forcing the issue on drives, which I don't necessarily have a problem with. And I love that Jaw is fearless. He never stops coming. I will always remember how impressed I was by second year Jaw Morant going right at Rudy Gobert over and over and over again, giving him 45. And it's not just the finishing right at the rim. I mean, he is so good at those floaters now too. And he's got a variety of finishes. You said it perfectly, dude. Literally nobody moves like Jaw. Like, you can take other dudes who are maybe equally quick, equally shifty, and there's probably only one, and that's De'Aaron Fox in the half court. But then you consider that Jaw is also, like, in the absolute top tier of vertical athletes. His ability to spin in the air, his body control, adjusting angles if it's for finishes or passes. I mean, he's just a marvel to watch. And this team desperately needed him, but... I don't think it's enough. I think the West is too good. I don't think that the totality of the supporting cast is good enough. I think that this is really disappointing for Jaw that he cost them this chance. And I think the 25-game suspension was probably excessive for what he did. I understand the league wants to send a message. It's a bummer. And ultimately, I still don't think that the construction of this team scares me. It never has in a playoff setting because they haven't had the great half-court offensive personnel. And that's not just because of Jaw. It's also because they haven't had good shooting around him and they haven't had other good creators around him. And unfortunately, I think this is a group that although they're young is ultimately mostly trending in the wrong direction. And at some point, I think that they're going to have to uh, find a way to meaningfully add real high level talent or shake things up because as much as I love Desmond Bain and Triple J, he's very frustratingly inconsistent, but he's an elite defender who has these awesome offensive nights on occasion and is overall at least a good offensive player it's just not enough in this high-powered west it isn't and I think you're exactly right they're gonna have to make a move that gets them closer they've been toiling around on the margins in no man's land for a few years and that's just where you don't want to be in the NBA and if it's a first round pick and shopping some of these other young guys maybe that you you know I won't say missed on, but guys that haven't panned out to star levels yet, you know, Zaire Williams, Santi Aldama, guys that are going to have value, you know, attach a pick with them and just 
throw the bait out there, man. Uh, Memphis has to make a move because they're just – they're not there yet, man. And I do think John needs offensive help. Like, Desmond Bain is yeah. great. He's a great number two, but they need, you know, another guy with the ball in his hands who can exert pressure. But I don't know, man. I, I think Ja really is a superstar, dude. The – yeah, like we've been saying, dude, he's such a unique player. Like, in just his style of play, it's mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun to watch, and it's really, really unique – I missed him. You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. that style of play. It's just, it's, and what's so crazy to me, man, is like, I think of like Russell Westbrook, right? Like the, you know, the mold of these hyper-athletic point guards, the Derrick Roses of the world. Ja mm-hmm. moves with such a grace, man. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, he does. With Russ, it could be like just brute power. Uh, Jaw's body control reminds me of like Lynn Swan, like on the like like <laughs> on the sideline, man, like the ballerina esque. Uh, yeah, yeah, man. There's an elegance, there's a grace to his to totally. his game that I, that I really enjoy watching, and I've missed him. It's yeah. Regardless of if this is gonna change meaningful basketball games and get them into a playoff push, it's a lot of fun having him back, and I do think we're gonna see a momentum shift. I wouldn't be surprised, Carson, if Memphis goes on a on a little bit of a run because of this. Uh, just because they're fired up to have him back, man, it's 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 a game changer. And he is different from Russ and D Rose. Even those guys, they're a little bit thicker. Like they're just <laughs> more built on power. Jaw doesn't have that. It's just sheer ballet. It really is. It's acrobatics. I mean, it's an incredible thing to watch around the rim. And I don't want to say that the Grizzlies have been in no man's land because this is a team that won 50-plus games in back-to-back seasons. But in those playoff settings, yes, I was very low on their upside because they were a 23rd percentile half-court offense in 2022. You're not making a deep playoff run like that. In those playoff settings, things slow down. You need to be able to create great shots there. Last year, they were a 17th percentile half-court offense, but you take jaw to that equation, Logan, and they have been a 0th percentile half-court offense this year. The single worst in basketball. So, good to have him back. Unfortunately, I think that their season is still shot. But the other really exciting game that we saw yesterday, Logan, was Celtics-Warriors. And we had decided before that game that we were going to have this conversation today about if it's time to declare the Celtics the title frontrunner. They end up losing without Kristaps Porzingis, but I still think it's a fair question to ask because they're still 20-6 and six right now atop the Eastern Conference. So, what do you think, Logan? Are you in a place where you want to make Boston your title favorite? No, I'm not ready to do so yet. I was going to say that yesterday. Uh, Denver, you know, I'm still not ready to count out. They've been without Jamal Murray. You know, it's record-wise, the Nuggets may not be in the same conversation, but I'm still not ready to dethrone them. I'm still not ready to honestly say that Boston's meaningfully better than Milwaukee or L.A. I still think we need to watch them. Right. Uh, a lot of basketball to figure this out. And the reason I say that, Boston does a lot of things right, and I love what they have been able to do defensively. They mentioned it on the broadcast last night. Drew Holiday being able to play this rover role where he's really the team leader on defense, I think is huge. Like, what kind of... Damn, man, the defensive personnel is you can have Derek White as a point of attack guy, and you can have Drew Holiday on the backside patrolling. It is unfair, and there's multiple times in this game where it's like, I was nervous about Steph. Like, Steph, you're getting a little loose with that ball, my man. You need to tuck that thing in your pocket Mm because D. White's taking it. But I'm not ready to do it. And I know they're without Kristaps Porzingis. Their big depth has been shot. I mean, they're playing Nemeus Keita 
uh, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Uh, shout out Kada. I thought he should have deserved a shot with the Kings, but if the Kings aren't giving a guy a shot in the NBA, that'll tell you about his stock. So I know they were down with the big rotation. This is not the Celtics at full health, but the late game issues still persist. And it's just like a, I can't even quantify it to you. I can't even give you a tangible reason as to why they're struggling like this. They're just missing easy shots. And the biggest thing to me is I had a tweet fired up and ready to go, Carson. <laughs> okay. Walk the Warriors it. sold this game on the defensive glass. I I mean, they could yeah. not grab a rebound to save their lives. It was like seven wide-open shots back-to-back-to-back. And it wasn't just that one sequence where the Celtics got all the boards. My dad and I are screaming at the TV, Wiggins, grab the ball. Kaminga, somebody. Yeah. Can, can we can we get a rebound? Uh. The fact that the Celtics couldn't shut the door like that and they let the Warriors crawl back in that game, the Warriors got their first lead since the first quarter in the fourth. They had a 17-point deficit in the second half. I mean, come on, Boston. That's a game you got to shut the door on. And I know that Tatum tweaked his ankle in the first half, too. He might have not been at full health, but he was shaky down the stretch. JB was shaky down the stretch. Horford was shaky down the stretch. And they couldn't grab a rebound. It it really felt like the same old Celtics and their same old issues were popping up. Again, I know this is not Boston at full health. I know that everything wasn't perfect in that game, but that is a game that you cannot lose, dude. Uh, You just, you got to find a way to shut the door on the dubs. And again, you let Steph Curry big dog you. In those big stages, that is when the best players need to step up and rise to the occasion Jason Tatum has consistently shrunk in those big moments, and Steph Curry rose to the occasion. He stole their thunder, put them to bed again. The same old Celtics issues seem to rear their ugly head, and that's kind of the crux of why I'm not ready to crown the Celtics as my favorite out East or in the NBA for that matter. Yeah, I don't want to overreact to this one game or even say that it's like, the best example of the Celtics crunch time issues, because I did think that they generated some pretty good looks. I mostly liked the process of Tatum really aggressively hunting Steph on those switches. And even though it didn't necessarily result in a bunch of Tatum buckets down the stretch, it forced the defense to dedicate multiple defenders to Tatum. Steph tried to recover to a guy who's more comfortable guarding that creates open looks for great shooters like Derek white. Like, I still think that Boston can commit more to driving downhill, to hitting the paint in general in those clutch situations. They really do tend to rely on a lot of threes. But at the end of the day, they got some open shots. They missed some open shots. They got some open shots around the rim, especially you mentioned those second chance opportunities, and they just missed a lot of them. And Steph went on this spectacular shot-making display. There are issues with their clutch offense that I think are legitimate even maybe that last night's performance didn't epitomize. Like, they are 23rd in turnover rate in clutch situations still this year, and we have seen that Tatum and Brown can get tripped up as ball handlers in those situations, and they're 30th in pace in the clutch. And I think you really felt that yesterday. They just grind to a halt, and they aren't great in those more stagnant situations. They're pretty darn good. It's not that they play with crazy pace, in normal situations, but I mean, when they are moving down in the open floor and they have good athletes and they have great shooters everywhere and it's a very spread out look, like they're really exceptionally dangerous there. And when you force it more into, all right, Tatum running pick and roll 
and maybe a pull-up three is the look that he's going to take. That's just not great. And that is the one thing that I will continue to harp on with Jason Tatum. Overall this year, I think he's been a bit better than last year because I think there's a couple of subtle but important improvements that he's made. I think he's a bit stronger, a bit more physical as a driver. He's been a lot more willing to attack in post-up situations and weaponize those physical advantages, and he has been excellent there. I think 88th percentile efficiency on post-ups. And he has reintroduced the mid-range game partly out of those post-up actions quite effectively. He's shooting 44% for mid-range on higher volume, and it's just very valuable for him to have that versatility as a scorer to where he's not overly predictable, and if he's breaking pull-up threes, he doesn't have a counter. But our friend Jason Timpf tweeted out a great stat last night. There are eight players in the league who take at least five pull-up threes a game. They all shoot 35% or better on those looks, except for Tatum, who was below 30%, and he was below 30% last year too. And I went and checked, that was the lowest percentage of any of the top 30 players in terms of pull-up threes attempted last year. And we've just seen too many times where he resorts to that. And again, last night isn't like the ultimate example, but on that final possession against Jonathan Kaminga, he does it. He takes a brutally difficult pull-up three instead of trying to, again, drive and at least force the defense into rotation and to help. It's just stagnant, and he's not good enough at those shots to justify it. He's not Kevin Durant. He shoots under 30% on pull-up threes. It's not good clutch offense. He has to consistently weaponize those physical advantages. And... Drew Holiday, as good as he has been playing his role, some people thought that he would be a solve there, and he's just not at all. And we knew that based on what we'd seen in terms of his struggles offensively in Milwaukee, right? He's just not a seamless creator in those situations, but his offensive role has been smaller than I even could have expected. Yeah, and uh, what you mentioned about Tatum, I mean... I don't know. I mean, it feels like Boston doesn't have a guy that they can reliably turn to down in the clutch. And to get over the hump and for me to buy into this team, it really is going to be Tatum doing that consistently. And it's not just him shooting pull-up threes. It's him, I think, being more unselfish, Carson. Like, I think he's got a... I mean, damn, man. Just like a pull-up three is just not a good look at the end of the game. And uh, you mentioned it. Dude, they missed 41 threes last night. That's a franchise record. They missed 20 looks in the paint. Like, it's... It's just, it's frustrating. And I think late in games, like you said, dude, I mean, you got to move the ball. If it's more ball movement, if it's passing, I just think Tatum has a, Tatum has a tendency to kind of go ISO mode a little too heavy and think, I got to take this shot. And I don't know if that's the, you know, Kobe Mamba mentality in him. He's thinking, I got to put it up because I'm my team's best player. But, you know, he should be looking for his, for the best shot. You know, uh, Kobe won a ring because he kicked the ball to Ron Artest and he hit an open three. You feel me? Like, the best look is not always going to be an isolation possession where you're going to work. And like you said, if it is that possession, Tatum has to get downhill more because we have seen more dynamism in his offensive game this season. He's gotten downhill more. He's diversified his shot palette, and it's a really valuable weapon to have, but we get in the clutch and you're settling for these bad looks, it's going to kill the Celtics again. And I think... That's still their fatal flaw, man. They don't have any guy in the clutch that I trust. Yeah. I don't know if I want to totally diminish Tatum because I still think he's clearly a star-level basketball player. He's a top-ten kind of basketball player. But it is a flaw that he has. I mean, dude, 
I've harped on it as much as anybody. I'm the guy who came out with the book over Tatum take in the offseason, and that was a big reason why. I mean, it's his general offensive predictability and his lack of consistency as a great decision maker, but those things manifest themselves in the clutch when you are in half-court situations, slow down, the defenses are dialed in, and everything is running through you as the team's best player. So, no, I don't trust him as much as, like, you know, the top five offensive players in the league. I still think he's a pretty good player to have in the scope of things in those situations. But things can get stagnant with Boston generally in terms of ball movement. And I think a lot of Celtics fans might write off yesterday's game and say, oh, we missed 41 threes. That's an outlier performance. We make the most threes in basketball. We're a great three-point shooting team. Both those things are true, but you always need to have multiple ways to win because you could have said all those same things last year and they lost to Miami. Why? Because there were too many games where they were settling for either pull-up threes or one-pass drive and kicks where the guy's not really open, but he'll take those looks early in the shot clock because he's a good shooter. And they had enough off-shooting nights like that that they lost. And I'm not saying that, that they can't win with these really three-point heavy performances because of course they can. It's central to their identity. But there also needs to be an option to pivot off of exclusively relying on those looks. Now, Boston, I'm not quite ready to declare my title favorite just because of my respect for Denver. But this is a great basketball team. I think this is a significantly better basketball team than the version that just went 57-25 and 25 and was one win away from the NBA Finals and clearly the more talented team in the Eastern Conference Finals. Like, there's been some Derek White all-star buzz as of late, man. They have five dudes who are clearly at least at that sub-all-star level. It's disgusting. When KP plays, they're 15-4. and four. I think he's an awesome fit. He's a great role man, or really a popper more than anything, but he's awesome attacking mismatches out of the post he's a very good rim protector hasn't even shot that well from deep by his standards and he's still had a huge impact on winning Derek white all defense 16 and 5 on 64 percent true shooting he has by far the best on off on the team disgusting tatum as i mentioned has been a bit better than last year and drew has this offensive burden alleviated from him now and is doing unbelievable things defensively. We've seen him guard a bunch of bigs this year. We've seen him have an impact as an interior defender, as this big guard who's strong with great hands. Like, he's holding people 9% below their typical field goal percentage inside six feet and is actually defending a good amount of attempts there. He's just such a versatile one-of-one -one defensive weapon. So, I mean, they're so, so talented. When they're on, when they are just fully on, I don't think there is anybody better, but... I have just seen it more with Denver. And I think this Denver team also, although they haven't been playing their best basketball, has a pretty clear ceiling to be even better than last year's team. Because now Reggie Jackson is hooping. That was a guy who I wasn't sure that I would trust in a sixth man role as a ball handler you have to lean on off the bench. But now, like, he's playing unbelievable basketball. Christian Brown is better, more consistent than last year. Peyton Watson is now a legit rotation guy and can really impact the game with his athleticism and his effort and his energy. So it is still the difference maker of, yeah, both these teams have great supporting casts. Boston's supporting cast, if you take out their best guy and just look at the rest of the roster, is still a bit better. Now, I do worry more about health for them because of KP, but it's a better roster in terms of the supporting cast 
But there is the difference between an unstoppable force, best player in the league, who I always trust to create great shots, who I always trust to make his go-to shots with great efficiency. That's Nikola Jokic. And Jason Tatum just isn't quite in that tier. And that matters. We have seen it matter for this Boston team. We've seen it matter in every postseason in NBA history. So for that reason, and just I think the Denver roster still complements each other so perfectly, I would still give Denver the edge. Yeah, I agree with you, Carson, and you make a lot of great points there. Uh, Denver does fit seamlessly together, but you make a phenomenal point with Tatum versus Jokic. It's not just the two superstars. Carson, Denver has two more superstars that I trust in the clutch than anybody on Boston. You know, if Jokic is having a slow night, I trust Jamal Murray more to close out a game than I do with Jason Tatum. I've just seen it more, and that is Boston's fatal flaw. I don't know what it is, man. Boston has this stank. That is just, it's like a, it's like a dark cloud, man. That's like follow, that just follows them and lingers until they get into these close games and either Jason Tatum casts away the evil cloud and he hits six, seven pull-up threes and absolutely emphatically slams the door on the other team. Or you get bad Jason Tatum and that storm kind of clouds over him and he shoots them out of the ball game and they lose a heartbreaker. It's. You know what I mean? Uh, people need to prove that they've changed, and Denver has shown me. Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic have consistently shown me that in those close, tight playoff games, they slam the door with a, yeah. you know, with a punch. Yeah. Boston doesn't do that, and that's the difference to me between a real contender and a a team that I still need to prove it to me. Like you said, like you said, I'm not counting out Boston. I think this is the most talented iteration of this team that they've ever had. And they yeah. are certainly one of the best teams in all the NBA. They're one of the most talented teams as well. But I need to see that fatal flaw get erased as this season goes along before I can fully commit and buy into this team. That's fair. I would reframe it, though, not as a real contender versus yeah, a yeah. team no, that's something right, less than right. that. It's I don't me, want to put the I don't want to put the Celtics and the Cowboys here. Yeah, no. <laughs> it is like the title favorite because they have one of the best players ever with a perfectly designed supporting cast who just had a wildly impressive title run and I think have the potential to be better versus a team that is obscenely talented but has enough of a flaw to where they're still just my second title favorite. But I would still have them above LA for sure and I would still have them above Milwaukee. Now there's the path where Damon Giannis just goes superhero, right? But I don't know, man. I look at the advantages up and down this roster. This Boston team is so athletic. They have so many ball handlers. They have so many great shooters. They have so many great defenders. Like this is just a team built in a lab for modern basketball. And I don't want to discredit that and key in on their one flaw and ignore everything else that they're doing night in, night out. I will say though, what a win for the Dubs, Logan. The Dubs, who have now won Big three time. straight and got a couple very, very winnable games up next. The Wizards and the Blazers, just real quick before we move on. Are you starting to warm up a bit to them? What did this loss say to you for the Warriors? Or this win? Uh, You know, I mean, I just really like this bench, dude. I was really fired up with yeah. TJD minutes in terms of how he moves within the flow of the offense. I like his mobility, his awareness, his he's just killing him on the glass. He's he's a guy that I don't mind playing. Uh oh yeah. And I've enjoyed the other guys of the Warriors. I, I'm warming mm -hmm. up to them. Kaminga defensively yeah. uh, as an athlete. Yeah, pods. Mm. And I don't I don't wanna 
I don't know how to say this. Pods reminds me, like, if I somehow got to the NBA, I feel like B-Pods is what I would be. Is like the lefty step backs and the just hucking threes and stuff. And I just look at it and I'm like, man, he learned that from me. You know, I taught B-Pods wow. everything he, he, you know, he knows at Santa mm-hmm. Clara. I was there. I'm I'm warming up to the Doves, man. Clay had a good game. It was – it felt old school, man. It felt like a oh, throwback. Yeah. And, damn, man, they tug at your heartstrings because half the game I'm going, God damn it, the dynasty's over. The other half of the game I'm going, <laughs> yeah, Steph! You know, and speaking of – I say that mess about Jaws, a superstar dude. Steph, I'm – Shaq's on to something with the Steph goat case, man. It, it, his skill set is so unique in ter- – I'm just saying in terms of, you know, how he could crack top tens and push into their Oh, he's already there. Steph is just one of the one of the great wonders of basketball and I'm going to miss the hell out of Steph when he is is no longer on the court. He's just one of the great marvels. Yeah. I knew, you know, like that last possession with Horford when he's telling uh clear out, clear out. I got that. You knew it was going in. I you know, it's there's only a certain amount of guys in the league that give you that feel. Yeah. The other guys are making me buy into the Warriors, Carson, and I think if they can make a really good swing at the trade deadline, I can buy the Dubs as real contenders, but I still do think they need Dre, man. They need Dre back oh, yeah. in, in a bad way, and they need him with his head screwed on straight. Yes, absolutely, but uh, this is just a crazy fun win, and it is great, dude. Like These young guys, these bench pieces, a couple of them are starters now, but they're playing so well. And I think the Kaminga, maybe he's not the most ideal fit in a motion system, but I mean, he's such a rare athlete and he is engaged defensively and he can just overpower people with those athletic advantages and get good looks around the rim consistently. Pods is awesome. TJD, maybe my favorite value pick of the draft. And when he gets minutes, he plays well. And it's like, wow, they actually have an athlete at the five now. They have a guy who can protect the rim, who can sky for rebounds. It's not that he's big for a five, but he can make up a bit for the fact that he's only six eight, six nine with just that great athleticism. So it was awesome. And Steph is still a top three guy who I want in a playoff series. And it feels like somehow that got lost for a little bit of this regular season. I don't know how you could put any of the dubs issues on Steph, but I feel like people are always quicker to forget with him than they are with other all-time great players. I talked about how there's only been, I can't remember if it was one or two editions of the ESPN NBA rank, which we talked about earlier, where Steph was a top three guy in the league, they said. And Steph's been a top three guy in the league for nine years now. So uh, there's just this weird thing with him where some people are too quick to presume that he's over the hill, that he's fallen off a little bit. He hasn't at all. And no, the dubs aren't contenders as currently constructed. All I want for the holidays this year is some NBA action. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks. An instant dub just for you. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code NERDS. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code NERDS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problems with gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort, licensee partner Golden Nugget Lake Charles, 21-plus age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See sportsbook.draftkings.com slash football terms for eligibility and deposit. 
deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. But, Logan, but... There might be a path for them to get there because you mentioned them taking a big swing at the deadline. Lowry Markinen is apparently no longer untouchable, the Utah Jazz say. Not that they're eager to move him, not that Lowry is eager to move, but that he is no longer untouchable. And that rings a lot of bells for teams around the league because this is a great basketball player who fits in a lot of situations and who has maybe the best value contract in the league, $18 million per year over the next two seasons. So... Where do you want to see Lowry end up, Logan? I got a couple of destinations. You hit it on the head, though, man. His skill set is so valuable and so malleable to mm-hmm. so many different systems. And it is a value contract. You don't have to give up a ton to get him. It's three little contracts and some picks, you know, some young players, or it's two guys and some picks or whatever. You know, a lot of teams are going to be able to make a move for him. And what Lowry's doing this season, I think because he's in Utah and can get overlooked, 23-9-1 on 49-38-85 splits, and that's 63% true shooting. Carson, only eight players are averaging a more efficient 23 points a night than Laurie Markin. And that's Giannis Antetokounmpo, Steph Curry, Tyrese Halliburton, Joel Embiid, SGA, KD, Kawhi Leonard, and LeBron James. That's pretty good company, I'd say. Yeah. Uh, he's shooting 38% on catch-and-shoot attempts on nearly eight a night. He's also shooting 78% in the restricted area, minimum three-and-a-half attempts a night. Markinen's the eighth most efficient restricted area scorer in the league. And just five players in the NBA shoot more above the break threes on a better volume uh, than Markinen. I mean, point blank, he's one of the premier floor spacers and catch-and-shooters in the NBA. And like I said, man, I think his skill set just translates to so many destinations in the league. I don't know why you wouldn't want to take a shot at him. I mean, he can legitimately fit anywhere. And you think about all the different things you can use him for on offense. As a spot-up guy, because he's so tall and he's got Mm -hmm. such a quick release, can just get that off against anybody. Uh, You can use him with pin downs, with dribble handoffs, as a screen setter, as a go screen setter, you know, as a mismatch attacker. That's one of my favorite things, too. At the three of the four, you set a go screen and you get a smaller guard on him. Guess what? Laurie can go into the post and abuse that mismatch. And, you know, I think my favorite thing about him is just how smart he is. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's such a good relocator within the flow of the offense. And that's why I love watching these guys that – the Clay Thompsons of the world. It's a really – it's a rare skill set. To be able to drop 20 totally. points per game without the ball in your hands is insane. I mean, to yeah. say that uh, it's just it's remarkable. Go and watch. And uh, when a guard drives the lane, Laurie, if he's at the elbow, if he's sitting on the wing, if his guy cheats, if his guy cheats at all, Laurie is boom, back out yep. to the wing, back out to the top, and he's banging a three. It's He is so complimentary to a guy with the ball in his hands. And if your team has a guy like that, he immediately just maximizes the value that Laurie Markin brings you. You know, on top of that, uh, he gets up and down the floor well. He's a good rebounder. He's a fluid, agile athlete. Like, I don't think he's a great defender, but I think he's good with his length. And, you know, Carson, the ringer, uh, Kevin O'Connor, he did a report on what, you know, potentially he thinks that the Jazz are going to ask reportedly we're hearing Mitchell Gobert yeah. level value, which is kind of insane to think about. But, hey, damn, man, the Jazz are geniuses. Taking these guys, turning them into higher value guys, and then turning them into more assets. If you get that kind of return, you know, two, three young players and three firsts or five firsts and some young guys, you know, whatever it is, you yeah. could get 
great value. Uh, I think you said this a couple. I think you said both of these destinations, Carson. I'm not going to try to get fancy with it. Uh, Oklahoma City is one of my favorite destinations. I think point blank. Again, you think about they already have their defensive superstar, Chet Holmgren. They already have their offensive mm-hmm. superstar in SGA with the ball in his hands. Uh, you trade uh, Josh Giddy needs a fresh start. Usman Jiang, Trey Mann, three young guys that I think have potential in a couple of firsts, three firsts. Again, the Oklahoma City Thunder have so many, it doesn't matter. They can just uh, yeah. you know, throw as many as they want at him. He's a great complimentary piece, and I think, again, especially alongside a guy like SGA, you know, sliding Dort to the bench or however you want to do it, the floor spacing you would have with that unit is insane. I mean, it takes your mm-hmm. offense that is already great up to another level. And then uh, another team I think you mentioned, I like the Pacers, and the reason I say that Ooh. is, I mean, just lean more into – I think they need defense, but you give Halliburton his Robin. You know, you already got your Batman. Yeah. You go out and you get your Robin, and I, again – you could, Carson, you could, I feel like, pitch me anywhere for Laurie Martin. Yeah. And I would go, damn, man, that's a great spot. Like, he is so yeah, perfect in any situation. But Oklahoma City, I think, I don't know if it puts him over the top, but damn, I think I got to bump him up into that tier one of contenders if they were able to pull off a trade like that. I think that those are a couple great destinations, and I totally agree with everything that you said about Larry Markin and, and the beauty of his skill set, the malleability of it. And I was talking earlier about you see what happens when you take a John Morant off of a team that really needs that sort of dynamic creation. But it is true that once you already have your one John Morant, Ooh. you don't need another guy with that skill set, right? Look. Cook. Do you think that I'm about to pitch the Grizzlies? That's not actually what I was going to do. I was making a broader point, for example, to say that once you have a Trey Young, you don't need a DeJounte Murray, right? You want a guy who has an exceptional... That's hilarious because I'm not pitching him to the Hawks either. I'm just making a broader point about basketball on how, yes, you want that one really (laughs) dynamic on-ball creator, but you can only get so much additive value stacking another guy with that similar skill set. And that's what makes Lowry so perfect and so unique as a star in today's NBA. It's what you said. It's that Clay Thompson sort of value at seven foot with the ability to really take dudes off the dribble, with the ability to punish mismatches. He's just a more imposing finisher around the rim because he's actually a good athlete, but he's also an incredibly smart cutter. I'm doing a whole YouTube video on Lowry, spoiler, so I've been watching a lot of his film lately. It's almost like you're watching Reggie Miller at times in seven foot form away from the ball. No, he's not that quick, but I'm talking about the deception, the bag of tricks to get open away from the ball, right? Engaging in a little bit of hand fighting and then you body fake one way and boom, the minute that your defender bites, you are just reading and reacting to every little movement. All right, I'm cutting hard. Okay, you're trying to jump over this down screen that's being set for me, I'm just going to fade to the corner. Like, Lowry's so smart at that, and he has every option available to him at all times. So, that makes him a perfect fit in almost any offense. And I really like the Thunder, Logan. I put together a very similar package, but you're not going to like this. You're not going to like this at all. I had Kaysan Wallace in there instead of Usman Jang because I think you need a more tangible, like, established prospect. Some people might say Giddy is that guy. I don't know. I've been off Josh Giddy for a while uh, before any of this personal controversy with him because you just don't see good NBA players in that mold where it's like, all right, this guy's not a very good athlete. He's a terrible shooter. He's not a real plus defender. 
Like, how do you really create offense when you're not a threat as a scorer and you're really just a great passer? You can only climb so high, and we've seen him struggle this year. I just don't think he's good for OKC. I don't really think he's good long-term anywhere. And Jang, just too raw. Kaysan is a guy who, yeah, OKC would really want to hold on to, but I think you got to give Utah something, and then I think it would be three firsts as well. I don't hate that because you're pairing up two of my favorite prospects in this year's draft class, Kaysan Wallace and Keontae George. I mean, yeah. I think they have their guard tandem for the future right there. Yeah. You might be right. I, I do want the Thunder to keep Kaysan because I think he's he's awesome. Against, yeah, he's such a good fit off the bench alongside starting units. But whatever you got to do to get it done, I think I think Oklahoma City should. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, there may be better – individual players that come available. You know, I don't know who those guys are. I'm hearing rumors of Do- uh, Donovan Mitchell. But in terms yeah. of guys that skill sets just fit, where it's a perfect puzzle piece. It's perfect. I think Laurie might, you know, complete the puzzle for Oklahoma City. I totally agree. And there's going to come a point, as we said before, you have more first-round draft picks and you have more talented young prospects in development than you are going to be able to roster in a couple years. And you're really good right now. So there comes a point where you have to send those dudes out in bulk and get that one player who individually moves the needle. I think Lowry is that guy right now. And he's pretty much on their timetable. He's 26. Like, this is a young player, but he's also a win-now guy. And absolutely, I mean, OKC has built a modern basketball utopia where they have multiple great ball handlers and everybody can shoot and they have lots of good athletes. And I think that Lowry uh, fits in seamlessly there. Like, he's a solid defender. He's not easily exploited, but you have Chet holding things down. You have a couple really good point-of-attack guys. So, I mean, it's even a particularly good situation for him because he's joining such a strong defensive supporting cast. And then offensively, yeah. I mean, J-Dub pick-and-roll with him. SGA pick-and-roll with him where he's popping, presumably. Or any of those guys running pick-and-roll with Chet. And then you have Lowry off the ball as a spot-up guy. Dude, the size that you would have with those lineups Phenomenal size. Phenomenal size. Like, that's the one thing that we've talked about, right? They are big in the backcourt, but they're not big in the frontcourt. Especially before Chet, they were small. But even now, Chet is still slight. Adding another 7-footer who is, I mean, stronger than Chet. Yeah, that would absolutely be good for them as well. And I think it would make them an immediate contender. Like, adding a score, an overall offensive player of that caliber... That team is good enough, man. They already have a clear top 15, probably top 10 player in SGA. They have like an all-star level guy in Chet. He's that great defensively, that good of a fit offensively, that efficiently. J-Dub isn't far behind. He's a top 50 kind of player. And then Lowry's a top 30 player. Like there's just not that many teams with that sort of individual talent and they fit together really, really well. So that would be terrifying. But I did mention the Warriors and that's another destination that really really intrigues me because Lowry is a perfect fit there like the Jazz run off ball screens as much as anybody in the NBA and that's been so great for Lowry's skill set because that is where he's most effective doing damage away from the ball but I mean the Warriors are the ultimate pioneers of that man that's what they do they run motion offense they run off ball screens Lowry fits perfectly there he is such a great release valve and adding that sort of offensive skill and size in the front court is exactly what they need he will punish you punish you for selling out to stop Steph and I think we've seen enough 
struggles from Looney this year to say, I mean, if you can add a seven footer in the front court and then still play Draymond at the five as your interior defender, the guy holding things down in terms of rim protection, like that's probably the best lineup. And I prefer Lowry to a Pascal Siakam for sure. I just think he's a much more seamless fit. So the package I put together for them, and it's a bit painful because you got to give up dudes who are playing really well, who are young. I think it's Pods, Kaminga, GP2, unfortunately, just to make the contracts work. And then I think it's probably two first, maybe three. I think that's worth doing though. Because I think at some point here, you need to add more high-end talent. These depth guys, I love them. I love them. But you're not contending unless there is another game-changing player on the floor. Lowry is immediately, easily your second best player in a perfect fit. So you're slotting Looney to the bench? Yeah, I think... Yeah, I think that your starting lineup, or at least your closing lineup would be Steph, Clay, Wiggs, Lowry, Dre. I think that's pretty damn good, dude. Do you think you need one more? Like, the only thing I'm concerned about is bench wing depth. Yeah. Well, that's why giving up GP2 sucks. So maybe they move Looney. Maybe it's Looney. Because, like, those are the only two guys in that sort of mid-sized contract range, like 7 to 10 million that they need to make the contracts match up here with a couple other dudes on their rookie deals. Very low dollar values. Maybe that's actually the move. I I like that trade, though, man. And I'm kind of salivating a little bit at the, the idea of the floor spacing, man. Just having Clay, Steph, and Markinen. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, you get any dribble penetration in there. And CP still, because you're not trading them, right? You're holding on to Chris Paul in this. I think it becomes complicated. I mean, moving CP would be great, but he's not an asset at all. And then yeah. the Jazz would actually need to add players because Lowry's contract is so great. CP's making like $12 million more than him. So I think that's probably not the route because you need to give them mm-hmm. young assets. Yeah. I like that, man. Do you think, does that put you, does that put your dubs into, into that tier one of contenders to you? Not tier one. Not with the three teams that, to me, are clearly the best in basketball. But I think it puts them back into that next tier. And I think that that's where they need to get. Because right now, there's just not enough high-end talent on this basketball team. But I think you would have enough in terms of depth. I do, man. Like, if you did move Looney, well, Dario now gives you a look of the offensively skilled five who brings the shooting and the passing TJD, like, yeah, you don't want to just thrust him into big-time playoff situations, but it's a different look from the five-spot mm-hmm. an athletic dude. I mean, if you do move GP2, I think that Moody has been so good as that 3 and D wing. Like, I think that there's enough good bench pieces here to where they can actually sacrifice a couple of them. It's not ideal because those guys have been good, and I think the future is bright for Pajemski, and I think it's getting brighter for Kaminga. But you're trying to win a title, man. You're trying to do the best that you can to get in position with Steph Curry to still be a seriously threatening basketball team. I think Lowry does more for you in that context. The Pacers pitch, just really quickly, is also interesting because I think that that would be offensive utopia. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, goodness. Just adding more shooting. By the way, Lowry's good in transition, too. He runs the floor hard. He can handle a bit. And he's an awesome shooter as a trailer. Like, him and Hallie... They're so smart. They're so efficient. They're so lethal as shooters. Uh, 
that would just be awesome, awesome basketball to watch. I don't know if they can quite put together a package that competes with the Thunder or the Warriors, honestly. The Warriors, that's a pretty good package, especially because those firsts, you start looking at the real Steph decline range a few years down the line. I mean, they might be pretty bad. They might be pretty bad, and those picks might end up being pretty valuable. But the Thunder have more than anybody to throw together, which is why I want to see them do it. I want to see them stop existing in the theoretical realm where they have 34 picks over the next eight years and actually turn that into something concrete. Okay, Logan, we are witnessing some unbelievable individual starts to this NBA season. And the MVP race has been such a hot-button topic in recent years, last year probably being the epitome of that in a way that wasn't so great. The dialogue got pretty nasty, and I don't think ended up with the right conclusion because of that. But, who is your MVP right now? I wasn't, you know, expecting to feel this way at this point uh, in the season, but I don't think I can give it to anybody else but Joel Embiid. Yeah. Uh, The Sixers are... Again, by point differential, one of the greatest teams of all time. That's what they're on track uh, to yeah. do. And uh, Embiid is the only player, again, if he was to hold this stat line for the rest of the season, he would be the only player in NBA history to average 34-11-6 in a single season. Uh, he's also one of three players. Uh, Carson, uh, some quick hit and trivia. Can you name okay. the or He's one of four players to average 34 points per game on 60% true shooting or better. Can you name the other three? Ooh, I can't believe that there are three. 64% true shooting? Or 60%, excuse me. Oh, okay. So MJ would have gotten there. MJ did it in 88. That's really interesting. James Harden certainly did that. Harden did it twice, 2019 and 2020. And then I'm just thinking about the other dudes who have gotten to that number. Wilt didn't do it. Kobe, I really don't think did it. Rick Barry didn't do it. It was just a different level of efficiency in that era. Elgin Baylor didn't do it just too hard. I mean, it couldn't be Bob McAdoo, could it? It's a goat. It's a goat, man. Who am I spacing on here? It's Kareem. He's averaged. Oh, Kareem. Wow. Oh, good for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. 1972, 34.8 on 60.3% true shooting. Embiid is currently averaging the most efficient. 34-point-per-game season uh, ever. I mean, even more efficient than James Harden's uh, campaign by 0.19%. I mean, he's been absurd this season, Carson, and I just think we got to reward it, the totality, uh, what he's doing defensively, what he's doing playmaking-wise, the shot-making. And it really does look like he's cleaned up uh, some of the issues that you know have persisted in the mm-hmm. playoffs. And we'll have to see if that continues. Again, the playoffs just a different stage. It's a different beast, and... I don't mean that we haven't seen him. You know, he's been better at dissecting double teams. He's been better at getting up and down the floor. He's been better at hitting difficult shots. He's been better in the clutch. I mean, everywhere you look, Embiid has been better, but that's a different stage. It's a different level of pressure, Mm -hmm. and I just wonder. It is a historic campaign, though, and I think we have to reward it again with the team success, the two-way impact, Mm -hmm. excuse me, and the historical precedent that you see from Embiid. Uh, this isn't to say that there are other there aren't other guys that I considered. I think this is a very competitive MVP race. Yeah, uh, I think you could go Jokic. I think you could go Giannis. I think you could go Luca. Maybe you're feeling froggy. You want to give it to Anthony Edwards, but uh, I'm gonna go with Joel Embiid, man. Uh, I think that he's having the most dominant season of anybody. Yeah. And if Jamal was healthy and the Nuggets' record was a little bit better, maybe I'd show some love to Jokic. But uh, I'm rocking with Embiid right now. 
Yeah, I think that it has to be M-Bomb. I mean, M-Fraud. I mean, Embiid. <laughs> and I don't think that there were many people who were more skeptical of Joel Embiid going into last year's playoff run. Just because some people were ready to crown him as the best player alive. And he did end up winning the MVP when I would have had him third on my ballot. And I talked about all of the questions that I had about his game scaling to a playoff scenario, all of which ultimately proved to be very problematic. And he struggled mightily in the playoffs yet again. But that's a different conversation. I do think this is the best Joel Embiid we've ever seen. I do think that he's improved upon the playmaking, which has been a huge issue for him in those playoff settings. Teams sending doubles at him and he can't punish them consistently enough. I think that we have seen him not only better in that capacity, I think we have seen him more involved as a playmaker overall. Running handoffs, at times even handling in transition. Like, he's just become more comfortable as a passer and an all-around offensive engine. And he is a lethal, lethal scorer of the basketball. Is he a bit overly reliant on getting to the line in playoff settings? Yeah, I think that we've seen that, and the foul grifting doesn't work in the same way. But right now, he's just a really good shot maker. The problem is that he hasn't ever been that level of a shot maker in the playoffs, right? His jump shot has fallen apart on him a bit, and that combined with the decreased foul rate has led to this crazy drop-off in scoring production and efficiency. But, I mean, when he's shooting 48% from mid-range, when he is abusing people out of the post like he is right now, it's ridiculous. I mean, 34 points per game on this efficiency, you can't overstate how insane that is and the impact on team success. The number one team in net rating, the number one offense, a top five defense, and even more impressive, they're 18-5 and when he plays. They're 0-3 when he doesn't. And yeah, They've had a really easy schedule as of late. I mean, it's been basically just alternating Pistons and Wizards games, and he's gone absolutely berserk on all of those poor fellows. But regardless, I mean, they're just playing dominant basketball. And although I thought this would be a very good team, if you asked me, hey, who's going to have the best record when their guy is on the floor, is it going to be the Sixers? Is it going to be the Bucks? Is it going to be the Nuggets? Is it going to be the Celtics? I wouldn't have guessed that it would be the Sixers with Joel Embiid. And of course, Maxi taking a leap is part of that. But I also think the massive amounts of defensive attention that Embiid demands really amplifies Maxi as well. And then defensively, he's been awesome. He's holding opposing players 13% below their average field goal percentage at the rim. So at this point, I think, yeah, I mean, Giannis and Jokic are outstanding candidates. And it is so impressive that we are looking at three years running now, where it's the same three dudes who are really the only serious contenders in this conversation. That's so impressive in terms of their regular season dominance. Giannis, I mean, he's shooting 61% from the field right now, man, while he's dropping 30 a game with what he does on the glass as a playmaker defensively. And his team is really, really good. But I still think that the fact that Embiid's team has been better when he's out there at a bit of a talent deficit versus the Bucs, that to me is more impressive. And Jokic would have been the front runner here a couple weeks ago, but between a couple ejections, which by the way, I'm not a fan of, I'm very anti-ejection. I think that I've been clear on that. But to me, unless there is pervasive, like verbal vulgarity, borderline abuse, don't throw somebody out of the game for words. Don't throw somebody out of the game for complaining a little bit too much or just complaining one time a bit too aggressively. It's heated competition. It's not your place to impact the game like that. Generally, I think like unless things escalate to that crazy verbal stage or a physical altercation, hold your whistle. Don't give out texts, especially don't give out ejections. But that has happened. So Jokic hasn't been able to finish a couple of those games. And then he had like the two awful shooting nights. It's just enough to give JoJo the edge here. Like all three of these dudes are playing at an 
unbelievable level, all of them in their own ways, putting up historically unprecedented numbers. But I think through a quarter, a little bit more, closer to a third of the regular season, Embiid is the deserving MVP. I'd be surprised if it swung the other way uh, the rest of oh, the year. Oh, of course not. But uh, it's going to ebb and flow. Do you give Luka any, any shout? I give Luka a shout as the fourth guy, I would say. I mean, I think that what he's doing offensively is unbelievable, and I think that what he's done for the Mavs as a team has been very impressive. Now, the on-off numbers for him, the on-court numbers, not so good. I think that that's a bit of a different differentiator in this conversation. And then, I mean, Giannis and Embiid are reaching a totally different level of two-way impact. Jokic is, to me, just the better offensive player and offensive engine and still a better defender. So I love Luka, man. I think that he's a guy who somehow got a bit undersold throughout this offseason. He is one of the most dangerous, most dominant offensive players ever. And that translates to the playoffs always. But in terms of regular season MVP, I think that a couple of the same factors that have kept him out of like the very upper echelon of the conversations here are applying again this year. But we agree, it's Embiid. I think that it's somewhat clear at this point, but absolutely things can change. I mean, Jokic had that thing signed, sealed, delivered until a, a month ago when Kendrick Perkins was like, did you guys ever consider that he's white? And maybe that's why he's getting MVP. And then uh, things change pretty quickly. And did you guys know that he plays no defense? That he's a fraud on defense? And this year it could be, wait, I know it's a regular season award, but Embiid sucks in the playoffs always. He can't win it back-to-back -back years because now he's in some special company if he does that. And that is the one last thing I'll say on this. I have seen people pivoting to their Embiid is the best player in the world take. And I think it's a lot of people who were detractors of Jokic because they would have argued that he didn't have quote-unquote postseason success. And by that, they mean that he wasn't winning multiple playoff series when the second and third best players on his team were out with injury. Look at how the guy fares individually. Jokic's game has always held up because of the physical imposition, the crazy shot making, the genius playmaking. Embiid has had tangible weaknesses that have been exposed. So if you weren't sold by Jokic's quote-unquote crazy regular season numbers when he was also doing it individually in the playoffs, to me, you can't be sold by Embiid playing at this level in the regular season when he has had major red flags in the playoffs. Just talking about that best player in the world conversation, because that's special. I, I can't elevate to you to that conversation just based on regular season performance, especially, especially when we've seen him struggle so, so much in the postseason. So things may be a dream for the 76ers and Joel Embiid this regular season, but you know who's not having such a great time, Logan? The Atlanta Hawks, a team that we haven't talked about much outside of maybe raving about the great Jalen Johnson, who unfortunately has been hurt these past couple weeks, but they're sitting at 10 and 15. And it's a team that in the last couple regular seasons has been just hanging around 500, struggling again now. Are you at the point with the Hawks where you think they should blow things up? Depends on how you define blow things up. If blowing things up to you is getting rid of everybody and clearing house, I'd say no. I'd say they need to retool. Uh, yeah. And my favorite thing about Atlanta is there's no real pressure right now to make any moves. Your only expiring contracts this upcoming season are Patty Mills, Sadiq Bey, and Wesley Matthews. But I do think there are three guys they should explore trading. That's Clint Capella. Uh, he's got $22 million expiring next season. Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, he's locked up for a little bit on basically 18 million a year. And DeJounte, who's locked up with $31 million uh, with a team option in 2028. And so why? 
you know, because I like all of those guys individually. I think they bring pretty unique skill sets. I think in certain situations they can be really valuable. I just don't think Atlanta's the spot. And then they just have really young players that I like. I like DeAndre Hunter as a building oh. block. He's under contract. Do you like DeAndre Hunter more than Bogey? Bogey's a lot better at basketball than DeAndre Hunter. I like DeAndre Hunter. I know that I mean, you like DeAndre Hunter, Logan, but he's disappointing, man. He's not that good. I mean, I like him as a defender. I like him as a floor. He's like, not actually that good of a defender, though. I'm just going to have to disagree, man. Okay, what does he do at an elite level defensively? I don't know if he does anything elite, but I think he's above <laughs> average as a, you know, as a point of attack guy. I don't think he's I don't think I think DeAndre is a guy that I don't know, at his contract, I think is is all right. You know what I mean? I think that's he's about an approximate value for how much you should pay a, a guy like that as a pull-up jump shooter, a guy who's decent in the mid-range, a floor spacer, a defender. And I think he works with Trey, like just in terms of how he fixes his deficiencies. But I mean, if there is another guy out of the mix that you're gonna trade, it would be Dre. Um but I like Dre. I like Big O. Um, I've loved minutes with him and Trey. I just think they work so well together. He's a versatile defender. He's a great lob threat. I love Jalen Johnson. I love A.J. Griffin. I love Kobe Bufkin. Like, these are all guys that I think could be valuable members of the rotation moving forward. And, again, you just want to fit the timeline. Capella's getting older. Bogdan's getting older. DeJounte and Trey's styles just don't really work together. And like I said, I think yeah. you could recoup good value for those guys. So I think you're looking for younger, cheaper, and just more complimentary players to Trey because he's one hell of an offensive floor raiser. I just think Trey's a little too valuable to give up on. I mean, he led the Hawks to the most playoff success they've had in a decade. He's let out four top ten offenses. He's let out a number two offense. And under Quinn Snyder last season, he uh, anchored the number four offense. This season, they're number four in offensive rating. He's putting up 28-3-11 on 43-38-88 splits on 58.7% true shooting. Carson, another quick trivia, only three other players in NBA history have averaged 28 points and 11 assists for an entire season. Can you get them? Yeah, let me get Oscar Robertson, Russell Westbrook, and James Harden. Oscar Robertson and James Harden is correct. It's not Russ. Oh, he got, what was it, 10.7 in his 31-point-per-game season? Uh, this guy did lead the league in points. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Right it's Nate Tiny Archibald, of course, the GOAT. It, it is Nate Tiny Archibald. And I don't know, man, we talk about it with Ja. I think Trey may have slowly become underappreciated and undervalued across the league just because his team's losing. That's kind of what tends to happen, right? Quarterbacks lose games. We bump them down their rankings. Players on great NBA teams or, or uh, great NBA players on bad teams are losing games, and we bump them down a notch. It's just what happens naturally. And so I still think he's really valuable. He's a foundational piece. I would not deal him away. I don't think the Hawks should blow it up, but I definitely think they need to retool. The puzzle pieces just don't fit. And again, I think these are intriguing assets that other NBA teams would be interested in making moves for, man. You know, these are guys that, if you don't give up a ton of value, if you give up future future value, young players or picks, these are guys that could be valuable members of a playoff rotation if you make the move at the deadline. So, yeah, I think the older guys, the guys that don't fit with your timeline or fit with Trey, I would explore moving them. Yeah, so I'm aligned with you on a couple of these. Um, I think Bogey is playing awesome basketball, and I do think he's a good fit. I mean, he's just such a lethal shooter, and he's good enough as a playmaker. The Hawks have been a lot better with him on the floor. I just think he's such a positive offensively that he's worth keeping around. But I definitely think this team should be moving towards more decisive change. They're still a top five offense. 
but they're 27th in defensive rating and they have been below 20th in the league in defensive rating every single year of Trey's career. They just haven't been able to figure that out whatsoever. I didn't like the DeJounte move when they made it, despite being somebody who advocated for they need to bring somebody else who has some ball handling juice, some creation here. It shouldn't have been a guy like DeJounte who was so wired on being ball dominant and who wasn't a very skilled or reliable perimeter shooter. He's actually shooting the ball really well this year, but nothing about their pairing is complimentary. And when they're on the floor together, the Hawks get outscored by two points per 100 possessions for the second straight year. They're outscored when DeJounte is on the floor regardless, and the offense is worse with him out there. That's not good value from the guy who's supposed to be your second star. And again, when I talk about them not complimenting each other, it's just nothing, right? They both want to run pick and roll. Neither of them are very good off-ball players. It feels like the most synergy you get is like DeJounte runs pick and roll on one wing, and he doesn't really create an advantage, and he just kicks it to Trey on the other wing, who shoots a stagnant spot-up three, or isolates himself, or does something that's really separate from the initial action. So it just isn't a symbiotic relationship. And Murray is a guy who, you know, is going to take your offense out of rhythm a bit because he wants to play at his own tempo, his own rhythm. He is a guy who's used to playing with the ball in his hands, going to take a lot of mid-range jumpers. He's pretty good at those shots, but it's not great team offense. And he's not nearly the defender that he used to be. I mean, when he was like a specialist dialed into that role with the Spurs, he brought a different level of effort and engagement night in, night out. So you're getting a guy who's not bringing that sort of value defensively, who's an average efficiency scorer, who is just not in a position to play his best basketball in this role. It just doesn't work. And I think if you're looking at like star swaps, Zach Levine would be an immediate upgrade just because of the fit, right? He's so much better off ball as that sort of explosive scorer. Now, I wouldn't trade for Zach Levine because I think that that contract ultimately still handicaps what you can be. The Hawks are not trying to improve on the margins. They are trying to improve from a team that is firmly mediocre to a team that can actually contend under Trey Young. Zach Levine is not the guy who does that. But they do need to find a backcourt mate who can complement Trey and who can compensate for his deficiencies a guy who can really defend who can really shoot and who can ball hand and play make as like a true secondary guy uh, if they had a Derek white i mean that would be unbelievable even if they had logan your favorite nba player an emmanuel quickly like that would be so much better those guys yes they're pretty few and far between <laughs> you know guys who are that good in those roles but it shouldn't be impossible to find somebody who can fill that role eventually and they need to do it I mean, they aren't. They might already have the guy on the roster. I mean, Kobe Bufkin to me is a stone cold buck, man. Him Kobe and AJ Buckin. Griffin, yeah. Him and AJ Griffin are both stone cold buckets. I can't, I can't quantify it. Those guys just know how to operate, and that's what always made it so confusing to me, Carson, that they traded for Dejounte Murray when they mm -hmm. went on that playoff run to the Eastern Conference Finals. I mean. It, the formula worked, you know. They, yeah. They, I, I never really understood why, like. For these really ball-dominant guys, like you mentioned earlier with John Morant, with Trey Young, I think the best weapon that you can have alongside them uh, at the two-guard spot is a guy who can just stroke it, man, who can just knock Kevin down Herter. threes. Uh, Kevin Herter, exactly, man. Uh, yeah. You know, John Morant has Desmond Bain. It, it just works because those guys exert so much pressure on the defense. Yeah. Uh, you want wow. shooting and you want play finishing. The problem is just... Herter was another liability in the backcourt defensively. So they needed somebody 
who could defend those point of attack matchups and they haven't found him. And we'll see what Kobe Bufkin can be. He's barely played this year and he's hurt. AJ Griffin, I really liked last year. He's struggled this year and he's getting a lot of DNPs. So I'm not sure that they have a resounding solution on this roster. But the one thing I will say before just hitting the absolute panic button on the Hawks, no, I don't like their current construction if we're talking about them being a real threat in the East. But when they had Jalen Johnson, they were 8-7. and seven. They're 2-8 and eight without him. They were a winning basketball team. They were outscoring the opposing team by 6 points per 100 possessions when he was on the floor. Their defense was over 8 points per 100 better with him. I mean, he is a really good all-around defender, man. He can guard versatile wing matchups, but he also brings secondary rim protection offensively. He is an awesome play finisher, crazy good in transition, elite athlete, very good shooter, good playmaker. Logan, call me crazy. He's their second best player. In this context, if you want to pitch me, all right, of course, DeJounte can do more to carry a team offense, not to be legitimately good, but just in terms of that raw production, getting you decent looks out of pick and roll possession and possession out. Jalen can't do that. But when we're talking about guys who scale alongside a player like Trey Young, there's no question to me that Jalen has a more positive impact on winning. So losing him for the time that they have really, really does hurt what this basketball team can be, but they still need to add that backcourt mate and I know that you love DeAndre Hunter, Logan. I know that he's a Virginia guy. I know that you saw baby Kawhi in him. It's just not there to me. And it's more about the defensive end, that he was supposed to be such a great prospect there. And I watch him, and I think he's not that quick on his feet. He's kind of spacey. Like, he's not a super active help defender. Uh, he can make mistakes off ball. And then he's not this sort of like big vertical athlete who brings that interior help. So I just kind of go around and I'm like, there's a lot of mediocrity there. And they've been worse with him on the floor offensively. Yeah, he's a good shooter, but that's kind of it. I mean, he can get to his looks for mid-range and whatnot, but that's not super valuable to a team offense. I've cooled off on him. I think that they could upgrade on the wings alongside Jalen as well. But at the end of the day, until they can put together a serious defense, I mean, there's only so high that they can climb. And they haven't done that. They need to make moves towards that. It's disappointing. Since that Eastern Conference Finals run, Logan, this is a team with a losing record and three total playoff wins. And that's a real letdown. I don't want to totally disregard your observations, but I do wonder if in a... You mentioned the team defense struggling. I do wonder if in a different system, if he was more motivated to play better defense with better personnel around him, you may get a different Dre. Again, Virginia was yeah, – that's what they did. They prided themselves on defense. It was a great team defense that worked together as a unit. And, I mean, consistently, it's been impossible to build a good defense in Atlanta because you have Trey as a point of attack guy. So I don't want to say that you're wrong or, or you know, the observations you made are wrong, but I wonder if in a slightly different winning context if Dre would – would be more engaged and would be better. Um, I don't know. I'm fine, man. You can if you want to sell your your Dre stock to me at, at pennies on the dollar. I I'm will. I, I will buy all I'm of selling it, man. It. All right, buy it up. He's also a very bad defensive rebounder to be playing in your front court as well. Yeah, trade bears some responsibility here, just in the sense that he isn't the easiest guy for other stars to play with. But DeJounte also isn't a great number two for a lot of primary ball handlers in today's NBA. He just doesn't have that sort of complementary skill set. And Trey's still doing his thing, man. I mean, the playmaking this year has been unbelievable. And again, they are a top five offense. He's going to make you an elite offense. 
but they were a better offense with Kevin Herter than they ever have been with DeJounte Murray. And I think that that speaks volumes to the fit. And DeJounte is seemingly unhappy. DeJounte seemingly wants out. I don't know when that move is. They don't really need to force the issue. But I would act with urgency because you don't want Trey becoming really disgruntled and then you have a whole other issue. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. On your hands. Okay. Real quick, Logan, as we wrap this up, get to highlight our little shining star of the week here because Kobe White has been balling out in December, averaging 26-7-7 on 50% from three, almost 69% true shooting, Logan. Nice. Do you think with Zach Levine out now, him having this opportunity to step up, is he a legit star or at least a legit future star? I don't know if I want to go that far. <laughs> stars, stars, okay. a heavy word. I have been really encouraged by what we've seen out of Kobe, mm -hmm. and I think this Bulls team needed a a shot, you know, a volt of, of something, a a, a, a yeah. change. Again, yeah. One of my favorite quotes of all time: Einstein, insanity's doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. The Bulls have been trotting out this five for you know, a brick, you know, about two, three years now. Yeah. Oh, are we going to not win 38 to 42 games this year? No, we probably will. I think, you know, they needed something. They needed something fresh. I've really liked the spacing, how spread out the offense is. 
Uh, the ball flows. Like, Kobe's a legitimately good decision maker, too. I've liked what I've seen out of him and pick and roll. Kobe's nice, and I didn't really anticipate yeah. this leap coming. Uh, the change of pace, the shot making, you know. Yeah. I don't know if Kobe's a star, but, you know, I think he's a starting point guard, and I think he's a damn good one, too. Uh, yeah, star's heavy. Star's just a heavy word for me. I want to see it for a little bit longer before yeah. we can go star, but I didn't anticipate this leap coming. Honestly, wasn't even my favorite young Chicago Bulls guard. I liked uh, Ayo Sunmu more. Kobe's a bucket, man. I, I think a pretty underrated one, too. He just, and he looks, I I know a lot of people have made this observation, too. He really does look just more in control and confident out there. I don't know what he did in the offseason oh, this yeah. year. There's no hesitation in his game. He's going to his spots. He's trying to deliberately do things. Like, that's a really big component, man. Uh, Michael Jordan said that in his uh, uh, his memoir. Uh, you know, life is a confidence game, and fear isn't real. And once you, the, you know, the more confident that you get, uh, the more fearless you become, the better you're going to play. And Kobe really does. It has translated. Life is a confidence game, and Kobe looks damn confident right now. Uh, not a star, but on the cusp, man. And, of course, uh, Chicago fans are going to eat it up. I'm just happy that they have something to look forward to. And, honestly, with the collective growth that we've seen from this team, like, they haven't missed a beat with Levine out. And I think that's the most encouraging thing about this is that with Levine out, this team has looked better. They've looked more engaged offensively and defensively. The ball movement has been superb. The offenses look great. And so with that, I mean, basically that means that whatever you get for Levine is cherries on top. I'm not saying go out and get negative value for Levine. Go out and get the best trade package that you can. But it looks like now that they can tread water and be as good as they were with Levine. But again, add future assets or add another piece of the puzzle that fits better than Levine. Uh I'm pleasantly surprised, and I think that uh, Chicago should cash in on Levine ASAP. I mean, again, they haven't been playing him. He's been uh, he's been benched, uh, I believe, for the last eight games. So, yeah, man, uh, uh, this is a, this is a positive sign for for Chicago, and just that, like I said, man, as talented as a player as Levine, to have him not in the lineup and to be playing better, uh, it's really remarkable. And, and and that's the thing that I think. Sorry, final thing on this is that. Yeah. Teams with a lot of talented players. We have so many talented players in the league today. Sometimes there isn't enough ball to go around. And, you know, Kobe may have done this last mm -hmm. year, you know, and I think he did. On the back half of last year, I thought we saw Kobe improve. Again, when you have Levine, when you have DeMar, when you have Ayo, when you have Vooch, all these guys that need to get their touches, sometimes there isn't just enough time to shine on the floor. And now with Levine out, it really has given Kobe. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's all you need is the volume of opportunity one thing's for damn sure, Kobe has made the most of the opportunity that he's had with Levine out. It is pretty hilarious, man. When Levine went out, this team was 5-14, and 14, and now they're 6-3 and three in his absence. I'm not ready to call Kobe a star either, but he has been so impressive and certainly better than I expected. And so much of that is just on the back of the fact that he is a sensational sensational pure shooter especially if he keeps shooting it at this clip like he actually is a guy who fits in the backcourt alongside really any sort of other player because he does bring enough of that pick and roll creation I mean he's not elite there he's creating with average efficiency out of pick and roll 
He's not super creative as a passer necessarily, but he's definitely gotten better. He is more in control. I like his pace. He usually makes the right read there when you're not talking about that next level stuff. And he's jittery and quick enough to get decent penetration. It's not great. And he's generally been pretty inefficient on twos. He's shooting 49% inside the arc this year. Uh, he's not a great finisher at the rim. He hasn't really established a super strong floater game, but he's getting decent looks there. I think he's a little bit better on ball, definitely, than I expected. But it is really that shooting, man. I mean, it's unbelievable. He's 42% on 5.5 catch-and-shoot threes per game and 43% on a couple pull-up threes a game. So when you have that kind of strap and then you're good enough as a ball handler and as a driver and as a facilitator, like, yeah, you're going to be a really good offensive player and you will work alongside a dude who wants to run a lot of pick and roll because you're crazy as a spot-up player. But then when it is your turn to run possessions, you can create good enough offense. So, I mean, these numbers aren't an absolute fluke. Like, it's not just the raw production. The efficiency is crazy too. And yeah, he's shooting the lights out. He's not going to shoot 50% from three, but I do think he'll shoot 40% on pretty high volume and that is a scary weapon. If we're putting him up next to like an Ant Simons in the tier of like the pretty young buckets who haven't done it in a winning situation. Give me Ant. I think Ant's just got a little bit more in terms of the on-ball creation uh, and is an equally, if not more lethal shooter. But I think if you're talking about Kobe White as a third option offensively on a really good team or a second option offensively on just a solid team, I think he's legit. I think he's legit, and I didn't expect that coming into this year. Not at year. all, uh, especially because, I mean, last year, like I said, outside of the second half of the season was kind of a down stretch for Kobe. It, it, it's impressive. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Like, like, do you think he falls in the Cole Anthony tier? Do you think that's definitively Kobe? I... That's a good question, actually. That's a good comparison. I think I slightly prefer mm -hmm. Kobe. I think Kobe's a better playmaker right now, and he's definitely a better pure shooter. Cole... Is a better athlete, but not by a wide enough margin to outweigh Kobe's advantages to me. So I would take Kobe it's there. For me. I, I like I like Cole's uh, swag. I like Cole's personality. I like Kobe's personality too. Man, he's just a chill ass little guy. Uh, Kobe, man, he's a happy fella. <laughs> uh, finally, really though, man, I'm I'm just happy for Bulls fans that they finally have something to smile about instead of. It's been it's been a bad couple of years for them, man. Yeah. And like I said, to to push into a direction that's positive, even if it is letting Demar expire or Vooch expired, letting these guys walk. I mean, again, we've been talking about the the fire sale that Chicago should go under for the past couple of years. But yeah, you got a young guy to build on, and finally your picks hit. It sucks, dude, because they've hit on some other ones too. Marketing, dude. Imagine if you held on to him. You know what I mean? Uh, it's. It's tough. I don't think he ever becomes I don't, Larry Markkinen in Chicago. I don't think he does though. either. But like the Larry Markkinen, you know what I mean? Like, it does suck. Like, like looking at hindsight, like, damn, this guy would. I think you're right because it does take, it does take mm -hmm. that sometimes to to really unlock yourself. A, 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 a best case scenario for you, and I, you're right. I don't know if that would ever yeah. happen in Chicago, but you do have one one draft pick that hit, and that's uh, that's good enough. But. I like Kobe, yeah. man. I, I wasn't expecting this at all, dude. I didn't ever see. Did you ever see, like, what was your ceiling for Kobe when you were evaluating him as a prospect? I never, you know, I saw maybe six man. I never really saw this. I think that my ceiling for him as a prospect probably would have been similar to this, actually. Like, uh, a relatively explosive score on the back of that shooting, but not a true offensive star who's good enough as a playmaker, 
as a prospect, that's probably what I would have said. But then I think that I got lower on him when we're looking at year four and it's like, all right, the minutes are going down. We haven't really seen tangible skill improvement anywhere. And that's what's so impressive about this rejuvenation. It's like, I mean, right. He was a guy who had been yanked from the starting lineup, who was playing 23 minutes a night, who was under 10 points per game to come back from that sort of down year in year four to play like this. It's super, super fun and encouraging. And I mean, he's on an awesome value contract for these next three seasons. He's making $12 million a year. So good for Chicago to have something to be happy about, man. Lord knows that they need it. So with that, we are done here for today. As always, appreciate you guys listening. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, there's always more Nerd Sesh content. You can find all of our full shows on YouTube with video. You can also listen across audio platforms. You can follow us across social media, TikTok and Instagram at Nerd Sesh, Twitter at Nerd underscore Sesh. You can join our Discord at the link tree that is across our social media bios. And you can check out our merch through the link tree as well, or just go to thevolume.com to see hats, shirts, hoodies, flags from Nerd Sesh, anything you might want on your holiday wish list. It is there from the nerds. So appreciate you guys as always. And with that, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile? Smile Actives is a safe and affordable alternative to expensive whitening procedures. You simply add Smile Actives gel to your toothpaste every time you brush your teeth, making it the easiest teeth whitening solution out there. In a clinical trial, Smile Actives users reported up to five shades whiter on average, all within seven days. No change to your routine, no extra time. Right now, they are running a buy one, get one offer. Hurry to smileactives.com iHeart today to receive this special offer with free shipping and handling.